I go right to the CEO and the CTO and I'm like, this is huge. Like this is going to change everything. Uh And they were like, really, are you sure? And then I, we started digging in and it just became so clear that this was going to be fundamental, not just to privacy, but to advertising in Mm -hmm. general. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about SpotDraft. If you spend hours every week drafting and reviewing contracts, worrying about being blindsided by renewals, or if you just want to streamline your contracting process, let's talk about an end-to-end AI-powered system that'll save you time. SpotDraft is a contract lifecycle management system that helps in every stage of contracting, from creating and managing templates and workflows, to tracking approvals, e-signing, and reporting via an AI-powered repository, SpotDraft does it all. And because it should work where you work, it integrates with all the tools your team already uses. SpotDraft is the key that unlocks the potential of your legal team. Make your contracting easier today at SpotDraft.com. Want to break into a privacy role? Where is privacy headed? And how does AI fit into all of this? No one knows better than my guest on the abstract today, Andy Dale. And not least because he's done 88 episodes of his podcast hosted with Pedro Pavon, the Data Protection Breakfast Club. In addition to DPBC, Andy is the general counsel and chief privacy officer at OpenAP. And before that, he was a legal leader, GC at companies like Alice, Session M, DataZoo, had a couple of transactions in there. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Tyler, great to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, coming off of a holiday break, which is a nice place to be. <laughs> uh, let's settle something first. Uh, it's in the name of your podcast. Is it privacy? Is it data protection? Is it neither? Is it both? <laughs> uh, Pedro, Pedro was the one that advocated for Data Protection Breakfast Club. And I actually think it's arguably sort of six half dozen, but I think data protection, the idea is that it, it, it subsumes a larger surface area than just data privacy. So it potentially pulls in, you know, information security, that relationship is really critical between legal privacy and, and the sure. info side of the business. So that's a really critical piece. I think it, it can then, it bleeds into product counseling and those kinds of, of things. So I do think data protection is probably where I would like to play my, yeah. my role. Um, mostly privacy is very specific in terms of the U S right now, we have all these different laws that I think are focused on data privacy, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to evolve sort of into a more globally and expansive idea, which is probably data protection. I'll be curious. I'm going to ask you later on, uh, about how AI fits into, to this and, you know, who ultimately should be taking that up, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but now that we've settled that we like data protection as the term, <laughs> uh, let's go back like a few steps in your career. You were really, I think, one of the, the early folks to latch on to data protection, latch on to privacy, uh, carve out a bit of a niche, build a persona around it. Back then, did you have any idea that privacy data protection would become what it is today? Did you see that coming? Not not initially. I don't think any, I think people would be lying if they said they did see, could see what it would be, what it is now. 
uh, I was working at on the in-house legal team at TD Ameritrade, and I had a boss, David Hale, mm-hmm. who was the chief privacy officer. He sat right next to me, and I remember being like, "What's the chief privacy officer? What is it?" And when he explained it to me back then, he was one of the first people that had like an IAPP certification up on his wall. Uh-huh. Piece of paper with a thumbtack, basically. And he was like, this is a little organization. I joined. But what happened was at that time, it was really focused on financial data. It was broker dealer. Hmm. And you had, there was a Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. So compliance with that. And the GC said to him, like, I don't have anyone to do this. Will you do privacy? Yeah. And he was the head of IP <laughs> at the time. Huh. And uh, he was like, okay, I guess. And then all of a sudden, within 12 months, it was like over half his job. And I saw that. He told me that. Eventually, I went and worked on his team doing commercial work and privacy, which really was the foundation for me to go be a general counsel because I think that crossover between commercial work, contracts, Mm -hmm. and privacy and data issues, I don't want to say it's the number one thing, but it's a pretty significant moniker to carry if you want to go in-house and want to be an in-house lawyer on a legal team or GC. Sure. I think those two things in tech companies really matter. So I was fortunate that 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 had happened. And I think when I got, when I left Ameritrade and went in as the first lawyer at DataZoo, the CEO was a former lawyer and he had been a GC. Yeah. Yeah. And he had been a lawyer in Washington, DC, and then a, a general counsel of a couple tech companies, but had been long past that. But when we met, the first time we met, I was like, look, what's important to this business beyond the day to day? I know you need me to do the contracts and I know you need me to weigh in on an HR issue here or there, but what do we, what do we really needed? The first thing he said was privacy. He was like, it's going to be a big thing. It's been something relevant for a while. And so I took that cue and, and I dug in and what I realized over the first couple of years there was it wasn't just the world around us, but it was critical to that business. So it helped yep. me elevate. It was an ad tech company and there's tons of privacy issues there. So it helped me elevate yeah. myself into more things, you know, do more things in the company. And I think of that was the moment right around that time when I started to realize, all right, like it's both growing in the world and mm-hmm. it's really like hyper important in this business as well. So let me, let me become an expert. Let me like draw on a thread there, I think, uh, which is part of privacy and data protection is, is about understanding the laws and part of that feeds into contracts. And another big piece is understanding data and that's when you're talking about it being really important to the, the business and the, where the product is headed. And uh, yeah. how do you think about those two pieces and like what you did first and, and what you eventually grew into um, in, in those roles? Uh, talk a little bit about those two concepts. There was a little bit of a forcing function there from the GDPR. Mm-hmm. So we had, we had the data protection directive, which we were aware of and complying with generally, but every, every country has its own, you know, law there when it, when it's a, mm-hmm. a directive as opposed to a regulation. So the GDPR gets announced. I go right to the CEO and the CTO and I'm like, this is huge. Like this is <laughs> going to change everything. Uh-huh. And they were like, really, are you sure? And then I, we started digging in and it just became so clear that this was going to be fundamental, not just to privacy, but to advertising in mm-hmm. general. And I just said, we got to lean ourselves in here. So the CTO and I started focusing some other folks in product. I got people around the business rallied around the idea. And then I started connecting with all the GCs and CPOs of the ecosystem companies. So from related players, so like AppNexus, Google, Facebook, 
Quantcast, just all these other mm-hmm. ad role, all the GCs in this area, because it was it was easy for us to collaborate because it was it wasn't competitive. It was let's how do we get through this? Yeah, and how does the industry get through this? So I think it forced me to get really focused on how we use data, spend time with product, spend time with tech, learn what the ecosystem is doing, and then I could relay some of that back to our company and say, look. The whole supply side of the ecosystem thinks this. The demand side of the ecosystem thinks this. Mm-hmm. What do we think? Right. And that became ultimately like a pretty valuable mouthpiece. Talk to me a little bit about those other stakeholders and whether or not uh, maybe maybe they saw where the ecosystem was headed or they saw the risk just as well as you did. But were they skeptical at first or did you really have to kind of build trust around this? Or was the was the business case for investing pretty obvious from the start. They were skeptical only in the sense that at that particular company, we didn't have, you know, tens of millions of dollars of EU revenue. We -hmm. had some and we had teams there and we saw growth there and we had a couple big customers. So it was enough that we felt, okay, we have to focus on this. We don't want to lose these big customers. Yeah. One of them I think was also an investor. So we had like reasons to think very seriously about what was going to happen and be smart on it because we knew they would ask us about yeah. it. So I think like the investment of intellectual capital was easy to get, uh-huh. but the other type of investment is always harder to get. <laughs> so it was like, how do we act? Okay, so how much money are we actually going to put into building something against what yeah. is really an unknown spec in a lot of ways? Uh-huh. So what ultimately ended up happening was the the circle of friends that I had helped convene with Pedro and with another guy named Vivek, who mm-hmm. was uh, the head of privacy at Rubicon Project um, and has gone on to be a GC at other places. Mm-hmm. The three of us started connecting people together. We got a group and we started talking. And the GC of Quantcast was a woman named Gita, who is at Google now on the policy side. But she took up the mantle with her product team of really working on what does cookie compliance look like? under the auspices of the GDPR. Mm-hmm. Plus, we also had another law, the e-privacy directive that was potentially going to be become a regulation at the time. It hasn't yet, mm-hmm. but it, it was then. So Gita was like, let me try to solve this. So they came up with sort of a solution for passing signals. She, she took the mantle at, at, on that, raised it at an industry group. The industry group really liked it. And then eventually it got passed off to the IAB, uh-huh. which is the interactive advertising bureau in in Europe, the Europe version of it. And they took on that project and pushed it out. And it was in use for several years until it got uh, struck down by a case in Europe. (laughs) But like, ultimately, we had to come up with a solution. And, and, you know, luckily, that group helped push it forward. And so at that point, I was able to go, all right, this is what a lot of the folks in the industry are doing. Mm-hmm. Then I had something that, you know, our company could react to. And I think eventually we we went in and honored that that signal as well. We're going to come back to this idea of working with industry orgs and privacy yeah. and how important that is. Um, I, I also want to pull on a, a thread that you just raised, which is around how investors might care about privacy. And 
I think maybe if folks look at your background, one of the things that might stand out is, is you, when you were GC of Session M, helped engineer the, the sale to MasterCard and a pretty big transaction. Good accomplishment for, for you as, as well. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious for broad lessons from that experience, um, but, but also what was the diligence like on the privacy side? Um, because I think that you're going to see more and more of that in uh, investments, but you're, you're also going to see that in, in M&A and, and other transactions. The M&A diligence, as you'd imagine, was much, much heavier. Yeah. Um, the We raised a round while I was there. It was a continuation round, mm-hmm. existing investors. And there was a diligence call, one call, you know, just, and it was me and the CFO. And I remember thinking to myself before the call, great, this is going to be like all him. Like they're just going to be asking about like the health of the business and, you know, forecast and kind of some of our basic diligence questions. Yep. Instead, it was all me. It was the the entire (laughs) thing was privacy and it was just really focused on, it was the law firm kind of driving it, but I think it was also the the investor, you know, needed to know what we were doing with data. So I think sure. there was a, certainly a heightened awareness of privacy issues at that time. Then when we went on to do the diligence of the for the deal to sell the company, it was exhaustive. Yeah. In terms of the privacy stuff. And in fact, MasterCard has a a privacy team that does privacy diligence. There's an infosec team that does infosec diligence, and then there's a data strategy team that does a separate round of diligence on strategic uses of data. So really, I was pointed in three different directions on privacy diligence. And at, at Session M, we sold it relatively quickly. I didn't have time to hire a team. So it was really just, it was, it was, me, just and you. Outside, it was me and outside counsel, you know, really working wow. on this. Luckily, I had had the ability to have really great, really great um, outside counsel. It was a global company. So we had a lot of global privacy issues. It wasn't a big company. And so we constrained resources. But to answer your question more broadly, it's a huge deal uh, for companies. And I think investors, it's it's something they like to know is being taken care of. I don't know how much it informs their ability to do a deal or not do a deal. Sure. But I think they're very happy when they hear that you're on top of it. When, when you were going through that diligence process, was it possible for you to keep any of the other sort of trains running on time or projects running in the business? Or is, is that all consuming? All consuming. Yeah. It's almost impossible. <laughs> the, only, the only thing you're keeping alive at that point is like a deal that's at the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> that's the bit. It's all, I'll tell you a story quickly. Like I have two young kids and I said to my wife, like this next these next couple months are probably going to be a little crazy. How can we support each other through it? That kind of thing. (laughs) And there was one night in the throes of the deal when uh, our CEO emailed me at 1145 at night. I was sitting in bed about to go to bed Mm -hmm. and um, I wrote him back, you know, at 1145 and then like 1150, my phone rings. And I just (laughs) said to my, I got to take this, you know, and she's like, what are you crazy? It's midnight. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is what, what you do when the, this is the biggest moment for the company. So I took the phone call in my bathroom and, <laughs> you know, got, got through the issues. But that's what it was like. It was all heads down. There were all-nighters. We spent a couple super late nights at our, our law firm's office. Just mm-hmm. get the deal done. Yeah. As, as you sort of moved from 
those really data heavy businesses, DataZoo and Session M, thought about Alice and and you know now now you're more back in ad tech at, at OpenAP, um, which we'll yeah. chat a little bit about. But you know, how, how did you think about what interested you next? Uh, yeah. what, what would make you curious again? Well, you know this from having spent a little bit of time in av- in advertising. Like that GDPR period was tumultuous for ad tech and a sure. lot of unknowns. Um, and so I had been doing it for four years at that point. And the, some of the pieces of the <clears throat> ad tech market were struggling. And I said to myself, I did the same thing at Ameritrade. Like if I stay here longer, I'm probably going to be like thought of as a financial services lawyer. And I thought to yeah. myself, if I stay here, I'm just going to be sort of in ad tech forever. What can I do that is a concentric circle around ad tech so that I'm still sort of able to be thoughtfully connected because that network I had was really, really valuable and great. And I didn't want to lose that. So mm-hmm. I tried to find something tangential. Session M was marketing tech uh, as a customer data platform and had ad elements in it. Yep. But it was a, a MarTech company, which really helped me focus on something like a little bit different, a different flavor of the same meal, basically. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Alice, it was the same idea. Alice is a gifting platform that was integrated into CRMs and platforms that are like that are doing sort of account-based marketing. Like if you've heard of like demand-based and Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. IP-focused company-based targeting. They have a big ad component as well. And so it was contributing to the same general business proposition. And so that was why. And then I just, other other intangibles. I liked the team. I liked yeah. you know, what we were doing there. And so that really was the impetus. But then, you know, after, when I started looking for what was next, um, I missed ad tech. And it became a different, it was a different time by the time mm-hmm. I was refocused on it. And the TV side is obviously where the action is. Sure. No doubt. And, and I was just like, this is a really interesting opportunity. I had another opportunity at the time as well. So it was like kicking around two different things, but I was just sold on, on the opportunity to get back in and do something. Streaming TV needs to have a better ad infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It will. It just will. Tell us a little bit more about OpenAP and, and the structure. It's kind of an interesting structure where you've got a number of member companies that yeah. sit on the board. Uh, let's start there. Talk a little bit about the structure of OpenAP. Yeah, it's a joint venture um, owned by NBC Universal, Paramount, uh, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery with a small investment in 2021 as well from Snowflake. Mm-hmm. It sort of started out with most of those members. There was like one change, I think. Turner was in in the beginning, and then it became Warner Brothers Discovery. But for the most part, it's been the same owners. They they work together. They work across competitive lines. It's more about uh, rising tide lifting all boats in terms of the technology that's used, how they can do audience creation and, and measurement that supports what agencies and advertisers are trying to do mm-hmm. uh, and make the publisher inventory more valuable at the end of the day. So all the tools and bells and whistles that you can create that make it easier to get insights into how my ads performed, mm-hmm. the more likely the agencies are going to use it, the more likely the advertisers will use it. So that that is the basic premise. And as streaming happens, there's just more and more activity in terms of what streaming campaigns look like. So the initial 
sort of phases, more linear TV, more general standard buys, and now moving more into the you know digital realm, I'd say. And it, there's not a there's not a government affairs component to it today, is that right? Like in, in the sense of maybe a more traditional industry org or association? Not at the moment, although we it's not government affairs per se, but we also helped uh, found this thing called the U.S. Joint Industry Committee, hmm. which is a committee focused on de- developing alternative currency ideas for streaming. And that, uh-huh. by that, I mean uh, alternative ways to measure advertising in a new world and in a new way. This joint industry uh, committee, which is a nonprofit, there are two subcommittees that are working on, you know, basically working groups on issues. And so while it's not a government affairs type situation, sure. it's definitely collaborative work, industry focused. And, and I think going to eventually potentially be, have those types of concerns at some point. Drawing on you know some of your prior experience working with folks around cookie consent signals at, at the sort of industry org level, now the work that you're doing today, can, can you talk maybe first about the importance of having these sort of standards making bodies and, and also how you think folks can can leverage engagement to help both their companies and also their own careers. I, I think that actually these groups can really be accelerants for, for folks that um, are able to, to drive value for their businesses through standards making, et cetera. Tyler, that's a very astute observation. And I think you and I both know this personally, like that, that these mm-hmm. groups can do this for us. And so I sat on the board of the Network Advertising Initiative, and that was a massive opportunity for me personally. Certainly, my company was supportive of that, uh, and it w- and it helped us get insight we just would never otherwise have had. Yep, I'm at the table with lawyers from the key companies. I can pull the lawyer from Google aside around the GDPR and say, "Look, what you do really impacts everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. What what are you thinking?" and they were pretty open about directionally. They're not going to tell you exactly what they're going to do, but pretty yeah. open directionally about like what they think is right and what they think uh, industry norms should be, really. So we were able to have conversations. And that obviously, I've made those connections personally then at that point. And so of course. that circle was, was really valuable. And then when I went off to other companies, I didn't necessarily have the industry body but what I did was make sure that I knew the GCs and privacy people directly in our ecosystem mm-hmm. because that's the next best thing or better, frankly. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Session M, I made sure that I got to know the GC of Segment, for example. Sure. And Mark Kahn became a friend of mine and they sold to Twilio mm-hmm. and I could bounce ideas off him and vice versa. He's just what an incredibly great human. He was a and podcast guest uh, a few episodes ago, actually. Yeah, give it, give nice. it an episode okay. a listen. <laughs> well, then you, you recognize how dynamic of, of a person he is. Certainly somebody that was willing to, you know, bat around issues that are complicated. Yeah. Um, I did that with a couple other of folks in that space as well. But then when I went to Alice, the same thing, the, the general counsel of Six Sense and Demand Base became, mm-hmm. you know, confidants and, and, and allies. And we shared ideas and asked each other questions and really, really important stuff. And I've done in a joint venture, I've had to do that even more, you know, because mm-hmm. those companies literally own 
own our company. So, and then in this company, in the TV and media space, industry committees are, you know, I hesitate to say rampant, but they're, they're very, (laughs) very important, more important than, than I even had a sense for when I joined, I didn't realize that so much of the collaboration is happening there because it's a safe space to collaborate, I think, as opposed to like collaborating off on the side on your own. Right. I think this this provides that place for people to talk about non-competitive issues together and things that lift everybody. It's not a partnership where both sides are thinking about their commercial interest as being sort of the paramount piece. How do we understand where the ecosystem is heading? Let's let, let's pull on that. For, There's enough pie for everybody. Enough, typically. Yeah. Um, how much of privacy work, data protection work, when it starts to be at sort of a high, higher level, is about understanding the competitive landscape or understanding where an ecosystem is headed, trying to predict that, as opposed to sort of a, a, a strict reading of law and, and regulation? That's a great question. There's two answers. One is, in sort of my role as general counsel, I think that is maybe the most important thing I can do. <laughs> In terms of understanding the direction that the ecosystem is going, what people want to do and how they want to do it, it helps you in every phase of lawyering. It helps you in negotiations. It helps you in your contract clauses. What should they look like? What matters? What doesn't? Where you can place liability on things and where you you can relax. Mm-hmm. So it certainly has an impact uh, across that those things as well as on the privacy side. Uh, that is, we're in a world of gray area because so many new laws are here. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, understanding that the ecosystem and what people do and how they do it and how they use data is really, really critical. And then I mean, the first thing I'll, I'll say is understanding your own data and how you're using your own data is, is critical as well. So I think you may have caught me on a question where where just I am a person that indexes more heavily on the ecosystem and on what yeah. those on the value that I think that brings versus a really technical privacy read. I think I have outside counsel to help me there. Mm-hmm. And so I do rely on on multiple outside counsel. Like I'm not somebody that has one privacy counsel. Sure. I have mm-hmm. four. Mm-hmm. Four. All with, I'm curious, so all with uh, different areas of expertise, like you have someone for GDPR, you have someone for California state laws, US laws, you might bring someone in if there's more of a congressional angle, like talk to us a little bit about that. It's a good question. It's not necessarily broken down by legal lines. It's actually, I think, broken down by what people do well, Uh huh. you know, and I think that takes a little bit of trial and error. But yeah. like I have one lawyer that I think really bridges the gap well between commercial and privacy. Mm-hmm. So that person helps me on the privacy policy, helps me on and their, their firm helps me on how our contract templates should look, key questions around big contracts and big deals. What should this look like? Yep. Because there are very few people I think that can span commercial and privacy together. Then I have folks that maybe I'll ask a, a question more about like, hardcore ad tech industry position sure. who's doing what 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 position should we take on this issue mm-hmm. that person is really good for that and then somebody else perhaps on a very heavily pr- nuanced product issue what yeah. should this say when this pop-up happens 
or then, and then somebody, as you noted around Europe, just in general, like Mm -hmm. that's a separate, I think that's a bit of a separate being. Mm -hmm. I think you can do it with the same lawyer sometimes, but often that, that other, that other opinion, particularly from someone in, in the region, I think is really important. It's all kind of divided up that way. We talked, uh, we've talked quite a bit about understanding where the ecosystem's headed. So we got to talk about AI <laughs> uh, for, for better or, or, or worse. Um, I guess maybe it, it, a place to, to start uh, is where you think privacy and data protection and, and AI, like how do they fit, how do they fit together? Um, yeah, let's, let's start there. And, and then I want to ask you about roles and responsibilities around this, this too. Honestly, I have, I, no one knows. I think if they're answering that they know for sure, yeah. you know, this answer, then they're just, they're just not being truthful. <laughs> I think privacy has a role to play. Like everybody does like the data that's used to build models. I think we need to have privacy considerations there, but frankly, the first issue is IP. I think, you know, in terms of uh, how to focus on the, the models themselves and what's being created, what content's being created, mm-hmm. what kinds of products and services are created, how they're created, what data is used to create it. So there's IP issues for sure. I think the answer to who should own it yeah. is a very interesting question because I think what you're, you see is you see this, and this is not, ex, not um, exclusive to lawyers. It's probably in other industries. I just, I see it because of where I am. Mm-hmm. everybody wants to be first. There's a first mover advantage in learning as much as you can about AI and digging in and being the one that's speaking at a conference about it and the one that's vocal, writing an article, having tech conversations. And so you're seeing both the IAPP lean in really hard on AI governance. I think that's a smart move. Sure. But like they certainly don't own the space. They're going to take it upon them to help create experts through training. And it's going to evolve. That training will evolve over time because AI is going to evolve so rapidly. So they're replicating their model in AI. I think privacy pros can, because we're technical in some aspects, can-ish yep. for lawyers, I think, oriented. can, try, yeah. to, can yeah. try to jump into <laughs> AI. But like an IP, I had dinner with, um, with uh, some of our outside counsel and one of them was a patent lawyer. And um, he's focused on this stuff too. And he should be like, mm-hmm. what role can he play in that? How can he advise early stage companies that are wanting to use AI and wanting to leverage uh, models? How can they do that? Do you have thoughts on how the, the CPO role, chief privacy officer role is is going to evolve over time? Do you think it's, do you think that these sorts of changes are going to make it a sort of more technical role? Are they going to make it a role that's more focused on legal reads? Is it going to become more strategic? Is there room for all of those? I mean, those are just a few options that I'm coming up with off the top of my head. But yeah, where do you think the role is headed? In some part, Tyler, I think it depends on the person. Yeah. Um, if somebody is inclined for strategy and inclined for product development advice and inclined towards how do we grow they may do that in some person, some of somebody else might be inclined to focus on how do I contain our risk, you know, as a large, a large organization, that's a big thing on somebody's mind. How do I contain our risk and innovate? How do I do that? That's hard. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be very, it's going to continue to be variable, which I think makes it fun and interesting for people. Yeah. In my personal 
like point of view, I believe and have been vocal about this in the places where I can be vocal. I think the CPO role in the future and privacy just in general is going to just be elevated into the GC seat more frequently mm-hmm. because I think traditionally we've seen a couple different areas kind of tend to move into that GC role historically way before, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 20 years ago, it was the outside council comes in. Sure. You know, they, got, they got to know the team, they got to know the board and the company and they're like, Hey, it makes sense to bring this person, you know, into our company. I think that probably still happens to some extent, but less so. More people are groomed in-house and then somebody comes up and and uh, ends up in that role. And so I think the more recent model was that's an internal person and that's one of a couple roles. It's somebody that has done corporate work at the board level yep. and been doing M&A transactions and has been involved in public company work, if they're public, that that person. Or it can sometimes be like a deputy GC that's owning a couple functions. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's corporate employment, IP kind of with a large top-down structure uh, or a litigator. And litigators often have exposure to large areas of the business. The reason I think privacy is that next thing is it touches every aspect of the business. So yep. the privacy lawyer has to know what has to be up on what's happening in the people org, has to be up on what's happening in product, commercial, IP. Like there's no place that we can hide. You know? yeah. So I think it's a, it's a nice window and I've actually seen it happen a bunch of times already. That's a, that's a great uh, roadmap of sorts for people who might be thinking, Hey, I've got privacy experience. I want to position myself for GC position. Uh, what about for those folks who are even more junior, who are thinking, I want to break into privacy? Do you yeah. have general advice or recommendations for breaking into a privacy data protection role? It's pretty hard right now. I think it's actually an industry problem right yeah. now. And I've talked about this with good friends. Jules Polonetsky is the CEO of Future Privacy Forum. Mm-hmm. I've talked extensively with him about this problem. I've talked with a friend of mine who is a partner at Goodwin, Omer Tene, who used to be at the IEPP. We mm-hmm. think it's a problem. It's very difficult to get the zero to three years of experience if you want to go into privacy right away. Yes. It's almost impossible. And so that problem has to be solved at some point. Everybody wants experienced people. And then it's equally difficult to move into privacy from areas that even might feel adjacent, like product counseling or IP or something. I think it's easier there if you've Mm -hmm. you've done that. But I can't tell you how many times, you know, someone will reach out and they'll be like, I'm so interested in privacy. I love it. And I've been litigating, you know, criminal matters, (laughs) you know, and it's like, (laughs) How do you, how do we figure this out? Because it's just so unrelated and somebody's not going to, it's very hard to get someone to lean in. So the advice that I've given in that case is just show as much interest as you can in general and, and do it outside of work, write articles, show up at, at privacy events, just be in the scene, Uh start to show publicly that that's your thing. You love it. And that 
will help you position yourself to get, you know, have someone take a chance on you. I met somebody just like this a couple years ago. She was a lawyer in a law firm in New Orleans, and she had done a tiny bit of privacy work, but not very much. And I could tell she was like, just great, loved it, was yeah. passionate about it, incredible, willing to work really hard at it. And I, and I had an open role and I was like, I would, I would hire you. I would hire her in a heartbeat, but I ended up like converting the role to a more experienced level and hired someone with 12 years experience that could do, that was doing other things. So I essentially shelved the role, but I would have hired her for it. And, and what ended up happening, I said, let's stay in touch. And we did. And a role came along at a company where I happened to, to be able to tell a couple people about her Uh and got the job. She's a full, as, as, as strong a privacy lawyer as you'll come across now. And because they took the time to let her have a chance and train right. her. And, and that story, we need more of that story. Yeah. And it's difficult to replicate. I mean, this is, this podcast is about you, not about me, but to a certain extent, that's, that was my experience. I didn't have privacy experience. I was public policy and uh, I was hired and given great resourcing with outside counsel and VP of finance who had been sort of moonlighting on privacy. And uh, they said, look, like, you know, spend three to six months and learn this and we'll, we'll train you and we'll provide you with resourcing. I'm very thankful for that. It was great. It was huge. I, I didn't expect this was right when GDPR was about to come into to play. And I didn't That's expect that it would grow into example. anything that it, that it has. <laughs> well, it's a tremendous example, Tyler. Like it's on our podcast, we've talked with GCs so many times about like, about getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. And, and the person that stands up and gets stuff done, it, people notice we had, um, do you know, the former chief legal officer of um, block used to be yeah. square. Uh-huh. Savant. Savant described it as run towards piles of shit. <laughs> I love I love that description because what she, what she means is take on the stickiest, nastiest problem that no one wants to touch, get in there and make an effort at trying to solve it. And mm-hmm. inevitably that will pay dividends for you. So it's the same the same idea. Privacy, it's not a pile of shit, but it's it's <laughs> complicated, right? It's really difficult right now. So if someone is willing, as you were, to say, I'll get in there, I will yeah. figure out figure out what makes sense for this company, or I'll at least give us like a read on it. Right. <laughs> people, are, people are totally receptive to that. So that's another way somebody internally, if they're already in a company but doing something else, they can take on a project that helps them evolve. As we uh, start to wind down a little bit, I've got to ask you about the podcast, uh, your podcast. <laughs> Tell us, I mean, 88 episodes, it's really impressive. Uh, and I know it's it's sponsored by or uh, helped organize by TechGC now. And um, tell us a little bit how you got started. How did, how did you and Pedro decide to do this? I met him in like 2014, 13 or 14 at a conference we were speaking together. And it was one of the first times I ever spoke at anything. And I met him. We were both early and unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we ended up talking, just the two of us, for two hours straight. We were purportedly working, but we just ended up – we were so interested in one another. You know how you just meet someone and right away you're like, this person is my friend? Yeah. He and I just clicked and we we kept having these conversations. And I mentioned the sort of triumvirate of Pedro, Vivek, and myself uh-huh. just – around these complicated issues together 
and and then over time he just he moved i moved to different companies but we kept finding ways to to connect and sometimes work together and work on things and um it just became this really really valuable friendship and relationship mm-hmm. and when covid started maybe a little bit before when i started at, at working at alice and a little bit before he and i had been sort of batting around like would anyone else enjoy these conversations? You know, we don't, we had convened a group of people to have similar conversations, but we were often kind of pushing the conversation along. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, let's, maybe we should try to do something. And my company, Alice was all for it. They were like, go do it. We, they had a, a a guy, shout out to Gons who produced it for us in the early days. It made it look awesome. And it just came out really well. And then eventually Chris Sands called us up and was like, mm-hmm. I love what you guys are doing. It needs to sound better. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and so really it's been this really nice evolution, friendship with Chris, partnership with Tech GC. Uh-huh. They gave us the equipment, you know, to make it to make it sound better and they help us produce it. And it's very it's an extremely low amount of work given the value that I think, you know, uh, that I hope people are getting from it. Uh-huh. It's just been really fun. So it started out, Tyler, as, as a way to like connect with our friends, see people during a time when everyone was remote and kind of produce something that felt fun. Mm-hmm. And we've just been having a blast doing it. I never thought we would do 88. We're going to, we're going to get to a hundred. Like that's our that's <laughs> milestone for sure. We're going to get to a yeah. hundred, get to a hundred this year and we're going to, we're going to celebrate And we've created um, unwittingly, created a little community around it of the people that have been on it and uh-huh. people that have been on multiple times that someone should be very proud if they've been on. Multiple <laughs> times. I think uh, Julia Shulman, I think is the leader. I think she's been on three or four times. I did an episode with her as well. And she's, yeah, that, that's a good one. Another good one. If, if, uh, if you like this one um, and shout out to Chris too, who within about two episodes of, of me starting to release this called me up and was like, I have a bunch of tips for you on sound. <laughs> Let's hop on a call. <laughs> Let me Chris tweak this for you. Is a salt of the earth, you know, a- excellent person and <clears throat> really just wants to make great content. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm not going to ask you for your favorite episode because I wouldn't be able to answer that question either. But uh, if you think there's an episode or two, folks who just want to get started listening to DPBC, where should they where should they go? Man, I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. I think the sound quality is not great, but I think the (laughs) first episode uh, that we did with Vivek was really excellent, really fun to get the three of us together. Uh, everybody was again remote, and, and nobody was really going to offices. So it was really great to spend time with those guys, and that's sort of in the wayback machine uh, yeah. on the episode. <laughs> more, more recently, the one I mentioned with Savon Whiteley from Block—that's an excellent mm-hmm. episode. We had the chief privacy officer of Uber, Ruby Zeffo. That was a really, mm-hmm. really excellent episode. Uh, we had. Uh, Adam Markey, who is the director of the ad product team at Roku, um, talking about talking about the relationship between Formula One and product management. Um, I like that one because it's it's a little bit different than than what we would normally talk about, more product focused. And then we did one with Julia, which was really excellent, called B- Privacy BFFFs, Best Friends Forever. I think uh, <laughs> that that's a really nice one. And then. Um, a bunch like the Omer Tene episode is great. 
the old Trevor Hughes episode, who was the CEO of IPP, is great because it was right after the January 6th insurrection. So we were oh, talking wow. a little bit. Uh, we had a really great episode uh, way back with Jules Polonetsky. Like, I think the second episode we ever did. There's too many to, to keep going. Mark heavy hitters. Cockerell, Mark Cockerell, the uh, VP of Legal Edge Service Now. Some really great, interesting guests from a wide variety of, of areas. And as you can tell, it's exciting, and, and I, I really like doing it. We will be sure to link to it in the in the show notes. People can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the rest. Yep, of course. Um, I've just got a couple of couple more fun questions for you. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure you're super busy, but is there a good privacy related book that you might recommend for our listeners? This is a really nerdy one. Yeah. So this is for. <laughs> This is for the side of the business that is very technical. So like if you, cause you sort of alluded to like the very technical focused CPO, uh-huh. if you're a technical focused CPO or you want to gross up in that area, mm-hmm. the sort of landmark book in my view is the privacy engineers manifesto. Okay. And it's written by Michelle Dennity and her father who, who she calls privacy engineer zero. Uh, <laughs> the first one hmm. And Michelle was the chief privacy officer at uh, Sun Microsystems when it was acquired by Oracle, Intel, and one other company, so Cisco. So she's been wow. head of privacy at multiple large organizations. She has her own company now. And so that, that book, if you want to get really technical, I think is an excellent one. I'm going to have to get that for my bookshelf. I, I've not heard of that or read it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, a last question for you, something I like to ask uh, a lot of our guests. Um, if you think back, maybe when you were baby lawyer in financial services or, or at, at a firm, what's something that, that you know now that you, you wish you'd known back then? So many things. <laughs> um, I think in the early days, I thought I came out and did a clerkship and then I worked in a law firm. And I think I thought well, when you graduate law school and, and you become a lawyer, the expectation of the client is that you know the answer. And I just think that's just not true. And so I think you need to know how to figure out the answer or you need to say when you don't know the answer and, and that it's complicated and we need to figure it out and ask questions. I think I didn't know that I should free myself from that burden. Mm-hmm. It took me a few years to get to a place where I felt really comfortable being like, good question. I don't know. And that's great advice. That's great advice for anyone in a, in a company, not just at a firm. I think there's a lot of power in, in telling people when you don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah. It feels really good to, to be able to feel like you can say that. Yeah. Well, Andy, thank you so much for, for joining today and, uh, and creating this episode with me. This has been a lot of fun. It's great to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd recommend that you give my interview in season two with Julia Shulman, CLO and Chief Privacy Officer at Telly, a listen. We go deep on careers in privacy and where the profession is headed. You can also subscribe so you get notified as soon as we post a new episode. And if you liked this one, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. So please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to reach out to me or Andy, our LinkedIn profiles are in the description. See y'all next week.